Drummers can handle the pressure. Yeah, or no one cares what they play. It's one of those. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong musicians, friends, and above all, fans of music dive into the stories behind classic albums as represented in Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. We're going to do a full-on breakdown from a musician's point of view. We're going to drop in snippets of tracks and talk about the how they were made, and what's going on musically in those tracks. And we're going to poke a little bit of fun. We love music. We love the people who make music, all of them. But we also love to complain about music. That's why we're here. This week, we're going to be listening to The Stooges, Funhouse. Very excited to get into this record. I'm excited to talk about it with you all. So first things first, let's play a little snippet of the opening track off of Funhouse. It's called Down on the street. Okay, now you know what we've been experiencing this week, what mindset we've been in. Before we get to our tweet-length reviews and our introductions, I wanted to mention that we have a very special guest on the podcast. I'm going to introduce him to you now. He has an awesome podcast himself called Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal, where he interviews all kinds of great touring musicians, people like John Darnell of the Mountain Goats, Dave Lombardo of Slayer, Mike Watt of the Minutemen. Those are just a few. He's also the co-host of another podcast called Movie Night Extravaganza, and he's the co-founder of the Catterwall Music Festival in Minneapolis. And apparently never sleeps. <laughs> he never sleeps, exactly. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, he's a prolific musician himself. He's currently gigging and releasing records with his band, Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends. I'm talking, of course, about our friend and champion of working musicians everywhere, Rocker. Conan Neutron. Welcome, Conan. What an intro. Fantastic. <laughs> That's all the time we got, folks. Sorry. No. <laughs> Join us back next week when we've used up all the magnetic tape. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. You know, long-time listener, first-time caller. I, I like the show. It's a pleasure to be on it. Excited to get in the ring with you guys. That's all I got to say about it. Pleasure to have you on, Conan. I think we're going to have a fun time talking about the Stooges and you inserting your knowledge. Conan, when we were corresponding about coming on, you were telling me about watching the show. You said something that really stuck with me. I told the guys about it. You called us rockist. And I think that is the best description I've heard of our biases. Sure. And so we're going to we're going to dive deeper into that. I want to hear where you're coming from. You're coming from a slightly different place even though we're a very similar age. So we're going to get into it I think this week with the Stooges Funhouse. But as we always do here, what we're going to do first is go around the room and give our tweet length reviews of Funhouse. And we're going to kick it first to Tom. Thank you all. This is Tom. You know, when I heard that the album was called Funhouse, I don't think that I was expecting super aggressive guitars, driving bass, 
and the ramblings of a seemingly immortal heroin addict. But I got to say, <laughs> it actually did provide a good amount of fun. I was pleasantly surprised by this album. Having not been the biggest fan when I first listened to Lust for Life, the last Iggy Pop album that we did, somehow Bowie made it worse. I don't know. It's better without the Bowie. <laughs> well, heroin might, might have made it worse also, just to be clear. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. This is, this is, is pre-heroin, pre Iggy. I, I love seemingly immortal, by the way, because it does seem to be true. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Until proven wrong, well, he is immortal. Well-preserved, we'll say. <laughs> yes. Right. Pickled. Pickled, indeed. Pickled. Well, that leather, that leather rub that he puts all over himself. All right. So, hey, everybody, this is Adam. And I don't know if you guys picked up on this subtle theme, but Iggy Pop feels all right, despite having gargled with sulfuric acid before all these vocal takes. <laughs> indeed. And now we're going to kick it to our very special guest, Conan. Give us your tweet-length review of Funhouse, sir. Sure. So, Conan Neutron here. Funhouse is a feral scream of the American id and the ground zero of a primal fury aimed straight at the heart of the false promise of hippie free love and an American nightmare. This record is why everybody knows the name Iggy Pop, and it still sounds timeless and unhinged today, launching a thousand bands as varied as Sex Pistols, Blondie, Guns N' Roses, Black Flag, and Queens of the Stone Age. Bow down and welcome to the Funhouse. Wow. Nice. Exactly the kind of prosaic tweet i was expecting from you conan thank you for not disappointing i'm on brand this is rob here and my tweet length review is menacing raw distorted images interspersed with primal howling it's like being stalked by a wild animal through the jungle mm. but that wild animal is also kind of sexy like a little bit sexy yeah, yeah. it may not have eating you for food on the agenda, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, I want to tell some of the background of Iggy Pop, how the band got started, but I also, you know, we can jump right in and start talking general impressions. I had never heard this before. Of course, as Tom mentioned, we covered Iggy Pop once before in Lust for Life, low these hundred or so episodes ago, two years back or so. And so, of course, I knew who Iggy Pop was. But man, talk about sexy. I mean, I was watching a bunch of these videos. I watched the Jim Jarmusch documentary on Amazon, Gimme Danger. And I agree. He's hard to take your eyes off of yeah. when he was a young man. Even as an old man, he's giving these <laughs> interviews and he's got these penetrating blue eyes and that blonde hair. And I'm, I was a little starstruck as well. But those penetrating blue eyes are sitting in this weirdly desiccated face. No, uh, sure, certainly now. But, but, but yes. back in the day, I mean, it's he was... I would argue one of the greatest frontmen of all time, if nothing else, for being just a compelling presence. I watched also some of those live shows, and I got to say, having known primarily Iggy Pop as an old man, I was, number one, surprised at how attractive he was. And I got to tell you, the mastery of the stage was yeah. pretty compelling. Yeah. I mean, part of it looks like he's having an epileptic seizure, but it really <laughs> works. Like, he's his, he never stands straight. I, he has scoliosis, apparently. It's a good way right? to hide it, is to never stand straight. <laughs> he's always kind of angular and just moving around, but it really works. Can I tell you? Five foot seven. Yeah, but how much of that is dick? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, how much of that is exposed chest, right? I mean, like, yeah. he carries himself like he's seven feet tall. And also, he started off as a drummer, if you can believe it. And we are going to get into all that background, but I want to hear first about what the music 
made you feel? Let's just talk briefly about general impressions, and then I'm going to take us back to talk about how this band was created, how the stage show and the stage persona was created, because rest assured, it was actively created. Adam, what did you think about the record? Yeah, this was my first time listening to Iggy Pop outside of that first album that we reviewed. And similar to Tom, I had only ever seen him as a as an old man. So watch, I watched the same documentary this week, which was fantastic. And to see him in his element when he was young was amazing. And everything we're talking about, though, is the stage show. And so I'm not sure that the energy that I saw on stage translated into this album. Because for me, at at its best, I thought this was solid rock music. At its worst, I thought it was unlistenable. So I'm coming at it from, from that viewpoint. But again, that documentary that I watched really put some context to it. And I, you know, learning that he was a drummer and, and how he came up was just a fascinating story. Yeah, I got to say that my initial take on this album was a little different than yours. I was like, oh, this sounds like a live show. It does not sound belabored, certainly. It doesn't sound sure. as if they used the studio as an instrument, which I like when bands use the studio as an instrument. But that it's not necessary for me to like an album where they use the studio as an instrument. And I did think that they did a good job of getting across that primal energy because there is a dangerousness. There's a an aggression. There's an anger to this that I thought was really compelling. Now, the thing that I had a hard time getting over was Iggy Pop's vocal affectation. It really took me a long time to get over that. And I did eventually get over it, but at first I was like, you're from Detroit. Why are you talking like this? I know people from Detroit. This is not how people from Detroit sound. I still don't know what Iggy Pop's voice actually sounds like. He has a million flavors of vocal approach across his records. And so I'm not sure what is the real one, in quotes. Yeah, it's freighted with attitude. It's predominantly attitude, I'd say. Yeah. Well, I think that he's said something to the effect of he wanted to stop doing what was going on in music and make something new. Yes. And the way they did it was through drugs, attitude, youth, and a record collection. Notably... Musical ability is not mentioned oh. in that list. <laughs> musical taste <laughs> is mentioned in that list, but not musical ability. Definitely not. Can in I there. just say that every person, first of all, I'll give respect to people who even attempt to make something truly new. And that yeah, did land sure. on me this week that they were really trying to break new ground. And frankly, I've just never even attempted such a thing with any seriousness. However, Drugs, a record collection, and attitude. I mean, these are the ingredients for every rock band of ever. For rock and roll music, yeah. Yet, yet what came out was Funhouse, you know? I mean, the, fir the first record is interesting. It's cool. I mean, No Fun is like an all-timer. Everyone's covered that song. Everyone knows, like, you know, No Fun. And there's and there's a couple, like, great moments. But this is, the this is like, again, I agree. It's, cr it's not only creating something new. It is almost the ultimate proto-punk record, which is to say that all of... What came from punk rock owes this a huge debt, for better or for worse. I mean, for <laughs> and I say that as a fan of a lot of that stuff, and like as other stuff, maybe not so much. But I think it's a very important point. It sounds dangerous. Oh yeah, it's interesting too thinking about how to innovate by not using the studio, quote unquote, properly. Yeah. So one thing that I that I did see in the documentary that I thought was fascinating, he hated the idea of corporate like corporations in music right and so you go into like a corporate studio or whatever and everything's perfect he would actually bring in his old busted pa system yeah. 
and plug his microphone into that and then have the studio mic pick up his PA system, which was distorted and funky and kind of torn up so that he maintained what we're, we're seeing as the live show and that raw energy. So that was really, you know, we talk about innovation. That's that's pretty badass. So I'll, gi- I'll give it to him there. Oh, and just one thing I was going to say real quick before we go too far past it, when Tom mentioned using the studio for an instrument, I could do it as a riddle, but I'll just do it as a reference instead, which is that Pet Sounds and Funhouse have something in common, which is that they released a the full sessions as like a box set. And they're both fascinating to listen to for wildly different reasons. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and they're both I worth listening to so. one time and one time only. <laughs> <laughs> peace and love, peace and love in my heart. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> once. <laughs> I was just going to say that what I expected it to be was provocative and dangerous, which was already mentioned. And these are the parts of punk music, honestly, that I've just never personally connected with, this adversarial relationship with the audience, the kind of violence of it. And so that is kind of what I was expecting. But what I what was pleasantly surprised by it was that I also found it to be inventive yeah. and dark and weird. And so there were parts of it I, I really liked. I want to say not in spite of myself, but I wasn't quite expecting to like it as much. We've been talking this whole time about Jim Osterberg, a.k.a. Iggy Pop. Can't imagine why he went with a stage name. <laughs> Osterberg! Osterberg! Well, I should mention, in addition to watching the Jim Jarmusch documentary, Gimme Danger, I also read about half of Open Up and Bleed, an an Iggy Pop biography. And so I'll be quoting from that uh, extensively. But so Iggy Pop, right, he grows up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's outside of Detroit. It's where the University of Michigan is. And they talk about in the book that the scene at that time, just just the town, was where high art met greaser thuggery. Because it was this weird mixture of working class factory workers plus intellectuals from the school and also the executives of those same manufacturing concerns. And so he grows up in that environment. Rob, I imagine it's a lot like when we grew up in Delaware and then went to the University of Delaware, Mm. and there was always what they refer to as the townies. And the townies (sighs) were the people who did not go to the school and were not really welcome at your parties if a bunch of townies show up and ruins your party. But we kind of straddled that halfway through because we're like, well, we go here, but we're also from here. So the people that you're talking shit on are actually people that we know and have been friends with for a while. And they also worked at the GM factory right down the street. So Oh, I was the Chrysler fan. Another parallel. <laughs> it's a resting seat of degeneracy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and that's a, which could be, the, that could be the name of uh, Iggy Pop's autobiography as well, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. So, I mean, one thing I want to get across right away is that Iggy Pop is a very smart guy. Mm-hmm. He's a very cogent, coherent thinker. And he thought long and hard about how to break in to the music industry and again, how to do something truly new. And as we've already mentioned, he started out his career as a drummer. He was a drummer in high school. He had a high school band called the Iguanas, which eventually led to his stage name of Iggy. Originally, it was used after the band had broken up in his post-high school years. Somebody would call him Iguana first as a put-down, but then it kind of caught on, and then it became Iggy, and then he he sort of reclaimed it as, as his own name. But when he was playing as a drummer, maybe this is just shortly after high school, he would get good gigs, paying gigs. He supported the Four Tops as a drummer. He played behind the Shangri-Las as a drummer. Which is crazy. I mean, think about that. Like, what? Can you imagine? 
imagine. <laughs> What's yeah. on this album? You tell me he was playing with the four tops. That's just mind blowing. Just this is a note to anybody out there who was like wondering. I, I imagine we have a whole lot of like early teen listeners to this podcast. Just a lot of like <laughs> know, 10 to 14 year olds. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to learn an instrument, learn the drums because not a lot of people learn the drums. And so you can get a lot of gigs playing the drums. Then what kills me though is that he had what any of us would consider a significant amount of success with this instrument. But by the time the Stooges formed, he's like, eh, instruments aren't really for me. I need to be the front man. That's, that's <laughs> the only option for me. I don't want to be staring at people's asses all day. Two things. One of the reasons why I personally think he's an astounding front man is he has a great sense of rhythm, even if the way he chooses to deploy it is not necessarily traditional. You can tell, and you get some of that even with his vocals, where this is like the punctuated animal guttural howls and, and things along those lines. You can see that background come through if you if you know that. But you almost have to kind of be looking at it like, oh, that's weird that he's doing that because it just comes across as this feral, like dude unleashed frontmanishness. It's true. He's yeah. We've already said if you haven't seen a video of a young Iggy Pop, go ahead and. YouTube that and watch a little clip because he is extremely compelling. He's extremely rhythmic. He's a very physical performer. And I think in his mind, he wanted to be some kind of cross between Mick Jagger and James Brown. Well, the other thing that he is absolutely not lacking is confidence. He has a lot of confidence in his decisions in the way that he chooses to engage with the songs. And frankly, that makes a great front man. Yep. I don't like shoegaze frontmen. I don't like the look down, oh, I'm sorry that you're at my show, frontman. I like the, you should be fucking thanking me for the amazing time I'm about to give you type of frontman. And Iggy Pop is that guy. He walks out there like he rules the fucking world. <laughs> he is one of the ultimate that guys of that thing. Yeah. To the point that there's many people that have tried to rip it off. To the point, I mean, let's be clear, man. A lot of Iggy's solo stuff, dude, he has a song called Butt Town. That is like the one of the worst things I've ever heard, I, and like a lot of those '80s records, they're they're so. You know Yet I'm about to go listen to that as soon as this podcast is done. That is on the playlist right now. It's, I can't not listen it's to it. Like they're objective trash, and like like not not great. And there's a few good songs. Don't get me wrong, like here and there, but it doesn't matter. Because it's freaking Iggy from the Stooges, from Fun House. I mean, yeah. even like you guys covered, you know, uh, I listened back on to the Lust for Life episode. There's a few songs that are like all-timer songs in there. I guess Carnival Cruise Lines especially likes The Passenger, right? You know, everyone knows about that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I think that there's a reason. Like, like I think, and, and there's a, a different conversation we had that's basically, how good does the art have to be? To give you a lifetime hall pass for putting out crap. Because ultimately, yeah. the incredible live show that we're all lauding for Iggy's solo career, that's why people go see him. They don't see it because they, you know, they really love Naughty Little Doggy or whatever the hell the, the last one was. You know, beat him up. I think one of them was right. called, like really right. beat him up. That's the name of the record. I gotta tell you, there's <laughs> that list is very short. It's like very much Stevie so. Wonder. And can't think of another. Like even Axl Rose. Like I'm not listening to Chinese Democracy. Fuck that shit. Like I'm not. Yeah, I'm not going to see new fucking Guns and Roses. We talked about how Metallica still tours stadiums around the world off the strength of albums that came out 40 years ago. Yeah, and that's a very different discussion. But there is that level of like, how good of a thing do you have to have done before you get yourself this pass to be like, yeah, but whatever. Who cares? It's Iggy. 
you know, great. By the same token, we're just talking about Iggy, and I think, Rob, you're probably going to pivot to this a little bit. I think Ron Ashton is one of the great underrated guitar players in, in rock and roll because he has a unique voice. So, yeah, let's talk about the band. I agree. The band clearly helped Iggy for all the reasons you're describing. But I want to paint a picture here that Iggy is a guy who's bounced around the music scene around Ann Arbor and Detroit and even over into Chicago and played these paying gigs, but he hasn't quite found his fit yet. He's friends with these brothers. The Ashton bros. Ron (laughs) and Scott Ashton. Scott Ashton plays drums in the Stooges. Apparently Iggy is the one that originally taught him drums, but I guess they've been hanging out for a while. He had showed him some beats maybe back in high school and got him started. And Ron Ashton, as Conan mentioned, plays guitar. And I want to talk about the band, and we're going to talk about like some of their contributions when we get to the songs, but I just want to point out that Iggy was definitely looking for an angle. They mentioned this book that Ann Arbor and Detroit generally was kind of a, a great stopover point for all the big tours in the U.S. in the 60s. So the bands would most make most of their money playing big shows on the East and West Coast, but they'd have to get between those places somehow. And so a lot of great bands would come through and play these relatively modest clubs or small theaters in Ann Arbor. And so he would see all this stuff to the point where the early Stooges opened for Cream. They opened for The Who. This is back in like 68 or something, right? Right. In that era. But a a couple things jumped out to me about what he was trying to go for and what influenced him. He said he was really inspired by, he went to see Bob Dylan on the Gone Electric tour. And while he was super into the electric playing it loud style he also there was a group of people at that concert right as we probably know <laughs> the old school folkies who were not they into were not it. not and so it, much a fan yeah <laughs> and dylan was feeding off of that energy he was like fuck you guys super antagonistic adversarial relationship with the audience and iggy that really stuck with iggy he was like i like that i like telling the audience to fuck off i don't care what they want i want to provoke them i want to be threatening to them that will be winning for me the other thing, and this was in the documentary that I just thought was funny, is that he mentioned he was in the library one time reading about ancient Egypt, and he read that pharaohs never wore shirts. And he was like, oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, he I'm a pharaoh yeah, yeah. to heart. Yeah, Good exactly. lord. He's like that kind of guy that would like be boarding an airplane at LAX with no shirt on. <laughs> I, I remember when he was on Mark Maron's program and like one of the first things he asked, like, hey, do you mind if I take my shirt off? <laughs> Which is amazing. It's a podcast, Iggy, dude. Come on. But he's like, I just feel more comfortable. You can do what you want. Yeah, all right. You can, be, you can be pantsless for all he cares. Yeah. One more thing about Stooge's history here that I think is relevant. I, I couldn't get, I couldn't pin down the exact date of their first show. I heard multiple dates recorded, but one story I heard was that the first show they ever played was on Halloween of 1967 as the Psychedelic Stooges. That's how the band started out. And they were later intelligently told to drop that word. Danny Fields from Electra Records, who signed them and helped champion them, by the time they got to releasing their record, he's like, you should take that word out. That word's not going to be cool. Like very soon. In like a year. Yeah, exactly. But I wanted, but for all the fish fans on the call, I wanted to point out that at that first gig, Iggy Pop played a vacuum cleaner. And they had like what, like a, like a blender or something that was like had contact mics and so, like this real horror show, like your friend's art show vibes. Like. I think he played a theremin too. Yeah. There, it was much more avant garde, yeah. I think, in those, in those early Did you days. you say your friend's art show vibe? <laughs> <I> did, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yes. Like, oh, you're, you're doing a thing, huh? All right. Uh, Is there an open yeah, bar? I'll be there. All right. <laughs> But, you know, I think what's important to realize, too, is that this was 
a happening scene. You had bands like the MC5 that was kind of like the Stooges' older brother band. The Stooges opened for them multiple times, and when they got then, signed... Then I would say if, if, if they had recorded their records better, history itself might be very different, because that was a hell of a band. But I think until you get to like their third record, it's trash mostly, <laughs> like for recordings. The songs are great. I noticed that. But, yeah. It's just horrible recordings, like just for for various reasons, different kinds of horrible. Well, because it relates to what we're talking about with the Stooges too, because their MC5 are kind of known, I think, for "Kick Out the Jams." That's probably their yep. most well-known song, and it's a live recording. It's a live, it's and, a live recording. <laughs> and so I, I listened to that, the record that that's on, and I was like, "Yeah, this this rocks. It feels, you know, it's down homey rock and roll. It's not too far afield of Bob's what Bob Seger would have been doing in the late '60s, especially for around instance. that time period. Sure, yeah." Yeah. Totally, totally. But then, yeah, you go to their first studio record, and I was like, this is terrible. What is I don't want to listen What's to this. A, and the songs are good. It's just that the recordings are just trash. Like, who who decided to record it this way? The recording process, it's a competency that you do have to build That's up. True. And Rob and I were in the studio this past weekend, and it goes so much more smoothly now than it did the oh, first yeah. several times. You know how to do so many things, and you know what the limitations are. You know how to use those limitations. And that concept of red light fever, it's a real thing. You all of a sudden freeze up when you're like, oh, shit, this is on tape. Or the other <laughs> thing is that you're so used to playing and your part is so buried in the room sound that you don't get to hear your part nakedly. And you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Oh, you start thinking God, about this is what I sound yeah. like. <laughs> I rewrote a bass part where we were there because I was like, oh, in the room, this sounded great. This sounds fucking terrible. And, and then you're like, oh, it sounds like that. Yeah. Huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, two, two things. First of all, nice red light fever reference. Those that know, know. And additionally, I mean, I just recorded my 14th full length record recently and Damn, dude. compared to like the first one like holy moly like like there were so many things it was like oh i was doing this wrong the entire time and yeah knowing how to like listen in a way where something that sounds cool live doesn't necessarily sound good recorded at all no and no. vice versa and and, and there's there are different right. skill sets but it's amazing to me how much that doesn't seem to get over with folks especially records of like this era and yeah. uh, there's a lot of like, oh, that record's cool. It sounds weird. There's something like really just kind of like, it seems like, did the engineer not know what you were trying to do here? And in the case of, of the Stooges, they absolutely did not, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> but they worked it out with that live, like, Iggy got to be Iggy. And they have that crazy live set. And you get to hear in that, that aforementioned box set that they did some years back, you get to hear that in real time. Just as you get to hear them literally like writing what words there are as they go. <laughs> Not but, a whole lot of prep done there. But having the inflection and uh, the the rhythm of it the entire time. Like, it's like, oh, no, you knew what you were doing. It's just that, like, you're not necessarily, like, the works of Keats here. You know what I mean? Well, and, and again, the confidence, right? Yeah. We're, we're dancing all around it. But he clearly has confidence on the stage. But it's possible for a person to just kind of put that on, to fake it until you right. make it. At least theoretically, but when you get to the studio, when all is quiet, you're beholden to a record label exec. You know, the fact that he's still willing to go in there and go, nope, my PA, my band, we're in the room, we're doing it live, we're doing it just like the live set. This is how we're going to do it. I'm dropping acid before every session. End of story. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea with no possible drawbacks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had also a little bit of a anti capitalist vein to him. Like he talked a little bit about. Record companies are companies, and they talk about record sales. They make the money. 
I didn't have this concept of I want to make millions of dollars selling millions of records. I wanted to make cool stuff that maybe 50,000 people in America would want to listen to. And I'd be super stoked if 50,000 people bought my album. And then 35,000 people bought my first album. And I was like, this is amazing. And the record company was like, this is a failure. And he's like, failure for you, maybe, but not for me. This is great for me. And it's... You know what it's saying? It's it's easy to be anti-capitalist when you aren't making any money. <laughs> like yeah, there's, fair point. <laughs> yeah. but by the same token, like I get it because, and especially you know at that time they were dirt poor. Like they're not just working class. They were all living in the same house, like sharing what little money they did to you know buy a box of crackers. And, and there's you know good evidence that certain things were maybe <clears throat> liberated from their bondage uh, right. now and again. <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> at the at the store, yeah. right? And and it's. I, and like you gotta understand that like it's that that's part of what for me it makes the desperation of of that mindset work so well with the music that's like oh no they're coming for blood like this is like look you can turn on fun house you can have a lot of reactions but like oh this is this is a mild time is not going to be one of them no no definitely <laughs> yeah. not that, that is a very good point yes yeah fair enough so they're gigging around they're all living like you said in a converted barn of some sort where Iggy's in the loft and they called it the fun house and that's where the name of the record ah, comes from okay and they were getting good gigs right and so they were they're making a name for themselves live but really it was when Electra sent their resident freak it's what their record labels used to call their one young hip person who would go out and attempt to sign bands sent him to go watch the MC5 show Stooges just happened to be opening and the guys from MC5 even, I think, helped it along by saying, look, you got to see the opening band. That If you like us, you're going to love them. And so convinced him to sign both bands at the same time. So one of the little anecdotes that I thought was absolutely hilarious was that MC5 is apparently they got super political. They eventually started like something called the White Panther Party. And Iggy and the band was like, look, man, we don't want any of that. And while they were saying that, the guitar player reached for his swastika armband. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like, we don't want any controversy with MC5. <laughs> Give me my Nazi regalia. Yeah, Ron Ashen, who just <laughs> did not have problematic viewpoints of race, but definitely thought that the, the fashion was pretty cool in, in a way that... <laughs> dude, <laughs> come on. Jesus Christ. Yeah, And it sucks that that's one of the man. most appreciable mentions that he's gotten on the show so far. But um, yeah, he's, he's a lot more than just that. But yeah. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> to say it was problematic is, uh, yeah. That, that, and again, the, the, the <laughs> irony, I think it's, a, yeah, it's an ironic, uh, it's ironic scene to say the least. Well, just another fun anecdote of how things go awry after this record is, is released is I heard that Wayne Kramer, the lead singer of MC5, once robbed Iggy in a heroin deal and left him on the street. <laughs> <laughs> oh Iggy was like, not the first time, not the last time. We're all good, brother. <laughs> you know. Okay. So they make their first record. Doesn't really sell a ton of copies, but they're still under contract with Electra. And if you remember, Electra is the same record label that had the doors and love. We sort of talked about it. It moved in the late 60s from being a folk label into an electric label, still a relatively small place. And they had this champion and this guy, Danny Fields, who worked at the label and would really try try his best to help them. There's a documentary about him, too. It's actually really interesting. I think it's called Danny Says, if I remember correctly. But it's, 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 really, it's worth watching. Like, he's an interesting dude just on his own. So they're thinking about re- recording album number two. At one point, I found this funny, Jackson Brown was floated as a producer. <laughs> <laughs> And I know that, and I'm still laughing because can you? I mean, that's just like 
Yeah, it was just a bunch of guys in suits with like full ashtrays in front of them in a boardroom, being like, "Maybe that Jackson Brown cat could do that." He's edgy. Yeah, that seems like good fit. They both have long hair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They both have long hair. Yeah, that's probably what it was. Probably, probably. And 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 let's also be clear. Again, we referenced the the first record. I want to be your dog and no fun, timeless rock and roll songs. But like, let's just go ahead and say that wasn't exactly burning up the charts. The first record. No. Yeah. No, the truth is the Stooges have only become cool over time, through the passage of time. That's the reality of it. They were a live band. They got crowds moving and on their feet. And it's one of these bands where, you know, everyone who bought one of their records almost probably went out and started a band. But they have their mythos has only grown in the decades since they disbanded. Let's use that as a fun little segue into our favorite segment, which we call By the Numbers. I want to throw a couple numbers out to y'all. First one, 25. That's the total number of distinct words that Iggy attempted to use in each individual song. Fantastic. He had a plan. Eat your heart out, Dylan. <laughs> which was songs should be less than 25 distinct words each. And he said he took that as from his inspiration for that was watching a show called Lunchtime with Soupy Sales, who was an old school comedian. Like 1950s, yeah, yeah. yeah like kids show, right? right? Yeah. He's a kids show, wore like a big bow tie, and he would say, kids, please write me in, but when you write, write letters of 25 words or less. That's amazing, I love that. <laughs> I will say that that word distinct is doing a lot of lift there, because there's a lot of going on on yeah. this. Okay, the next number I want to throw out to you is 20. That's the number of minutes that the Stooges were able to sustain band practice on any given day. <laughs> they apparently went so hard and so fast. Oh, my God. They, their stamina could not last longer than that. Love it. Wow. Love it. Okay, I got a couple more for you. Five. That's the number of months saxophonist Steve McKay was actually in the Stooges at all. They recruited him to be in the band about two days before the band left for L.A. to record Funhouse, and he was fired later that year by Iggy. However, he did catch the terminal bug of being in the Stooges because everybody but Iggy is dead. Yeah. And I would <laughs> encourage you all, if you have not gone to Steve McKay's Wikipedia page, Go there and look at the picture of Steve McKay. He is 64 years old in this picture, and he looks like he just opened the Ark of the fucking Covenant. He <laughs> looks like he's so goddamn old. It is ridiculous. He, he uh, by the way, lived in Daly City oh, for most really? of his later years. And in fact, in fact, I got to see Steve McKay do a set of Suger songs with Ron Ashton and Jay Maskus in the Fog before the Stooges got back together. And uh, really? I was shit. maybe one of four people that were like, holy crap. And people were like, who's that guy? Who's that other dude? And I'm like, who's the dude who's in a walker over there? Yeah. I was like, who's this? This guy's got a saxophone? What's going on? I'm like, no, no, this is, this is, oh my God, shut up, shut up. It was amazing. That's like the Great American Music Hall in like, I don't know, 2004, 2005, something along those lines. But before they got together. Oh yeah, he looks harsh, man. I just looked at that picture. Damn, dude. It's fucking terrible. It's not flattering. It's not flattering. Okay, let's go with the number two. That's the number of rhythm sections backing up Iggy Pop that are comprised of a pair of brothers. Sure. Recall, I just thought there was an interesting factoid that here in the Stooges, he's with the Ashton brothers, but later on Lust for Life, he's with the Sales, Sales brothers, brothers yeah. sons um, of Soupy Sales. Sales. <laughs> Get the hell out. No, it's, not, it's 
for real. Dude, that's crazy. Wow. And right. uh, and and also, and real quick, the Ashton Brothers, which in the first two records is Ron on guitar and, and Scott on drums. Uh, Ron moves to bass for Rob Power with James Williamson playing guitar. Because it was meant to be a different band. But he actually is a really good bass player as well. But again, siblings... Siblings in the band, still. It's a little bit of a demotion, if you don't mind me saying so, Tom. <laughs> oh, oh I, I do mind, by the way, but okay. But he actually, I don't think he was happy about it. Uh, honestly, I think he's a fantastic bass player, too. I mean, for me, it's like he's, he's, like, he's my pantheon of top 20 guitar players, so take of that what you will. But like, he is a really good bass player, so credit or credit's too. Yeah, as, as we're going to hear, the band unfortunately crumbled pretty quickly after this. Iggy and others fell into drug use, no. and the band broke up, and people started getting swapped out, and Iggy went to London, and it was uh, it, it was bad scene kind of shortly after Funhouse. So this is, in a way, the last hurrah. Even though they did record another record, they swapped out some members, as Conan's telling us. But the last number I want to throw out there in those darker days was one. The number of gigs where they let Steve McKay, the sax player, who did not play drums at all, play drums because <laughs> they needed the cash that bad oh. wow why didn't nikki just play drums oh well whatever who cares anyway. yeah apparently they said that every at the beginning of every song this is live on stage the iggy would have to come back and show him the drum beat <laughs> and then he'd be like okay i got it now and then they'd start the song wow no wonder he looks so haggard after all that stress <laughs> so yeah you're right I, I think that takes the cookie because he doesn't actually play the drums but i've I have a friend who did a gig one time where, sight unseen, they gave him an iPod. This is back in the iPod days with like all the songs. And he would listen to 15 seconds of the song before it started on stage and would just start into whatever he was listening oh, to. Man. So it's rough. Yeah. Wow. Drummers can handle the pressure. Yeah. Or no one cares what they play. It's one of those. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, yeah. one or the other. Played. <laughs> which, is, yeah. which is messed up because I think Scotty Ashton's an interesting drummer. Well, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into some of the focus songs, but he, he has, he's deceptively interesting and is, is what, I'll, what I'll say. Because you listen to it and again, look, they're called the Stooges. Like anyone's expecting like King Crimson style musicianship, you're in for, you know, <laughs> for Conan, a I, w- I was deceived by his deceptively good drumming. Yeah. I was definitely deceived by that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Okay. So, yeah, let, let's talk Funhouse. So they go to L.A., they're living it up at the Tropicana, and they spend about two weeks in 1970, in May of 1970, recording this record. And after, I think, a day of trying to mess around with a quote-unquote proper studio setup with baffling and isolation, they say, screw this, we're all getting in the same room, we're using my crappy PA, and this is what you're getting. And they decide to attack the album. It's basically an assault of sound for two weeks straight <laughs> in this single room, which I think comes through in both positive and negative ways. But what I was going to say was, I thought this was interesting. They really did structure the recording just like a set. So that the album is their set at the time, or what they saw is the set. And then they spent one day per song just ramming that one song until they got it and and that was it so they'd do 15 16 takes of a song in a single day and then they'd move on the next day that sounds horrible yeah sounds well absolutely that's exhausting yeah. my god it, it, it's definitely a a aliens idea of making records uh, for sure uh dan gallucci i, I think is the uh the guy who don, don gallucci don, don gallucci, don gallucci yes uh, louis louis uh, the kingsman like that's uh he he, he was the guy. He's that... the keyboard player in the Kingsman, and he's who actually gets the production credit 
for this and or blame as the case may be <laughs> or, or the blame as yeah exactly <laughs> so but doing a song that many times in a row is insane i think that our experience at least our experience tom and my experience for instance over this weekend we were tracking four songs i mean playing a song more than three times in a row it just starts to kind of become dead to you real quick it, it loses anything that makes it cool or interesting in the first place uh, and and that's one of the reasons why this Funhouse box set is kind of an interesting listen because you you well you get to hear it evolve and change and you get to hear that kind of happen with them and then they kind of find it again and then like it's very interesting again can't be more clear about this very interesting to listen to exactly one time <laughs> so I wanted to mention something else that I was surprised by which is you know we've been talking about debauchery I think it's safe to say that Iggy. Pop had a lot of sexual encounters during this time. We all know he's had it in the year before, of course. Yeah, as we've established, it's canonically. <laughs> that, might have, that, that might have happened around this time. But really, the drugs of choice, it seemed like, were LSD. This was pre-heroin, as far as I can figure out, for the Stooges. And it was only after all this that they started to descend into harder drugs, like cocaine and heroin. So the lore is that Iggy Pop dropped acid before every single day's work on this material. <laughs> and then at night, they're leaving the studio and they're going and playing the Whiskey A Go-Go, which apparently the cover photo, which is a pretty cool cover, I should say, is a picture of him writhing around on the floor at the whiskey. And, you know, listen, in case we haven't said enough about his visual presentation, he's shirtless, he's wearing a dog collar, he's a muscular lean man, he's got silver gloves making him look like an alien from a 1950s film right. or like he's going to do some kind of unnecessary surgery on you. Right. Maybe both. Who knows? Where the night takes us, right? Maybe both. He had the Ashton sister make leather pants to fit his legs exactly, so they were just tight as tight can be. He had pipe fitters, basically. Yeah. Pipe yeah. fitters. <laughs> and he said, he said this thing that, that resonated with me, which is he said, I felt I had to make contact with the audience at each show. I think a lot of these songs were built around the idea of jamming over a single riff while Iggy would just go out into the crowd. He's doing crowd surfing. He's kind of walking over the crowd. He's just jumping, face planting sometimes. He actually broke a tooth during one show because he thought somebody was going to catch him and he just face planted instead and bled all over himself. He often cuts himself on stage. There's that great footage, I forget what the live show is, where he's just standing on people's hands. Like totally. when he's, and it's like, holy crap, that's some like Lazarus stuff. That's crazy. <laughs> it, it looks wild. The thing he said about his his stage performance that that I think you can see once once you hear this is that he said, I, I tried to move like chimps do before they fight. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I could see that. Okay. Jackson Brown, clearly the guy that should produce that record. <laughs> Jackson <laughs> Brown. Uh, doctor my eyes. Yeah. Clearly the touchstone. <laughs> For this material. <laughs> I mean, I love record company executives. I love them. They're great. Adorable. Let's segue into talking about some of the specific songs. We've already played a clip of this one. It's the opening track. But let's drop back in to Down on the Street. Yeah, Lost in love. A thousand lives. Look at you. A thousand lives. Look at you. 
This is the song where I was like, this is a Mick Jagger impression, right? Like, he sounds like he's doing a Mick Jagger impression. Like an angrier, more in-your-face Mick Jagger impression. But I saw the quote where he joked about being called Mick Morrison because he said that, you know, (laughs) he's basically trying to be both of those guys. But what Mick Jagger taught him was that the vocal can be built from two notes, and that's fine. And I definitely, that was like, that came through very clearly on this song. It's like, oh, I see what you're talking about. Vocal can be built on very few notes, and you do a lot of like, <laughs> sounds in the background. But all in all, I really like this song. I thought this song was actually very good, very driving. This, yeah. this is my favorite tune on the record. Perhaps that makes me a basic bitch of a Stooge <laughs> fan. But yeah, to me, this one really achieves its goal. I agree. I heard more stones throughout the record than maybe I was expecting. It was a little easier than I thought it would be to link those styles a little bit in my mind. And yet I think beyond that, they do establish a tone for the record and maybe even for the band with this opening track that makes me want to put the record on again and again, which the longer we do this, the more you realize that dialing in that opening 15 seconds is so key to people's conception of what a great record is. And it's a statement of intent, right? Like it's sort of like, here's this like menacing groove (laughs) basically and you got this like borderline insane person yowling at you and uh you know it's again they're they're coming for blood right and there's something about the way that dave dave alexander and scott ashton are kind of locked in on it again you wouldn't think of it but it's like very much in the pocket for what it is and it's it's a statement. It's a statement of intent. And I and, and I think it's for me. It's up there with one of the great, like one of the all time great opening tracks for that reason. I rather enjoy the guitar solo too. I was trying to think. We've talked about dueling guitar solos before. You know, Sabbath is known for them. And <laughs> left I, speaker, right speaker. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I feel like this is somewhat of an interesting transition from the noodly psychedelic rock guitar solo, which was super heavy on like the real fast vibrato. And maybe we'll go back and, and research when the first dueling guitar solo in, in, in the different channels was. But I, I dug this solo, actually. Again, I, I thought for a mission statement for the album, pretty damn badass. Some great resting notes in in the, the solo in this one, which like you really feel. Yeah, yep. I do feel what you're saying, Conan. That he is a very economical player, and he's a very percussive player. Both both of which I think are well on display throughout the song. That second guitar solo has to be one of the only overdubs. Yeah, on this record, right? <laughs> I, I would guess. I don't know if the saxophone, which we'll get to later, was was played in the room or not. I couldn't quite get that. But yeah, I do like the sharpness of the guitar that definitely felt stylistically distinct to me, which was cool. I've heard Iggy say that he helped kill the 1960s. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, we, we already mentioned this came out in 1970. I think that was another bit of a little bit of surprise for me personally is how early 
in the timeline this was. How it was coming yeah. right off of Summer of Love and Yeah, yeah. Summer of Love. <laughs> well, that's over. <laughs> right. Exactly. So yeah, he says he Time for the Summer of Hate, everybody. Yeah. Welcome to the bleak void. He says he helped kill the sixties. <laughs> but so I, I felt two things simultaneously. I felt that it felt more advanced because I can hear where it went in the later seventies. I can hear punk i can hear the sex pistols the other bands that conan referenced television etc right but also it's a little moored in tradition like the rolling stones or those dueling guitar solos kind of anchored it back in Jimi hendrix territory just a little bit he's not as noodly as Jimi hendrix i agree so just interesting and you know something i didn't realize i didn't know i knew this song but i knew it from the rage against the machine covers album (laughs) i forgot about that yeah 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 where they also do Kick Out the Jams by MC5, actually. I think they did something like 15 takes of Down on the Street, which is, uh, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, Loose is the one where they did like 28 takes or something, which is insane when you think of like, oh. Brutal. Oh, my <laughs> God. Horrible. In a day. Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. Well, it's funny because Oof. Iggy Pop has a quote where he talks about basically listening to the Stooges now. It sounds like he didn't listen to them for a while after these albums were put out, and maybe he got so burned out on them. But what was his quote? His quote was kind of amazing, and it it sort of was my experience where he said, I listen to it now, and it's better than I realized. It took a while. It may be that kind of music. I was like, yeah, you know what, Iggy? I'm right there with you. It took a while for me to get into it. Like Some of these songs caught me right away. Some of the other ones were slow burners, but... I could see how this could be the type of thing that you either hear it and love it or you hear it and you're like, it's not for me. But then upon repeat listens, you find some things that you really appreciate about it. It is definitely a repeat listen record because there's songs that like first time I heard, I'm like, oh, that song's terrible. And then like later on, I'm like, oh, actually, that song's pretty cool. That song does this thing or whatever. It is notable, too, that. Iggy kind of went far afield away from uh, this kind of stuff. Like he played mostly with like Hesher dudes, like in in like the eighties and nineties. Much to the chagrin mm. of the actual music, again, you know, butt talent. All I gotta say. Can you uh, <laughs> can you for the uninitiated here define what a Hesher is? Hesher, <laughs> long haired metal guy uh, with metal guy tone, probably owns a metal zone, and just like central casting like metal dude, <laughs> like you know, Airheads. But remember that movie Airheads? Like, oh yeah, yeah, like those guys. leather vest basically but not yeah. clever like yeah not clever yeah, or funny okay. Right, okay. right. <laughs> and and like he really that was his thing that's the thing that he thought that like he should be doing and then it it took hearing that ron ashton was back and basically went on tour with jay maskus and mike watt uh and was like they, they said they just they took a whole section of the set it was just like stooges songs just as like hey this will be a fun thing to do and like he called him up, and there's the first time they had talked in something like 25 years or some crazy thing along those lines. And that led to the Stooges reunion. The amazing thing about that is that before that happened, the people that were obsessed with the Stooges were people like me that like worked at a record store, like, you know, probably had a birthday party record in their in their <laughs> collection, you know, like and <laughs> <laughs> and nerds, right? And I mean that as a compliment, like people that are that you know are like Tom Verlaine or Christine and, and stuff like that. That the Stooges coming back and playing, I think they did Coachella, and they did that. It basically introduced an entire new generation of people of like, oh, this is why we care about Iggy Pop. Oh, right, yeah, this is awesome. Right. This is really good. Well, you also had a resurgence in the late '90s when Lust for Life was featured in Train Spotting. I feel like Train Spotting popped back up. Iggy. 
so okay, so let, let me caveat that. Then then Iggy ha- was already having the resurgence because of Transpotting, especially Lust for Life, which is again the like the banger of a song as a record. You guys covered that. We don't need to get into it. But the Stooges were never given their due, especially not the Ashton Bros, especially not Ron Ashton, except for someone like Dennis Tech of Radio Birdman, and like again other nerds that would be like, oh, Ron Ashton's great. Stooges are amazing. All the guys in Mud Honey, they love Fun House. Well, great, but all the guys in Mud Honey doesn't buy you a house. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I but mean? <laughs> all the guys in Mud Honey liking you gets you to open for Mud Honey and Pearl Jam, which is where I saw Iggy Pop in the mid to late nineties. Yeah, absolutely. No way. Nice. And and, nice. and the idea that uh, again, I actually consider Ron Ashton a very like unsung hero of guitar because he had what many people strive for and do not achieve which is a unique style and again it was, it was based off of things like Manavishi Orchestra and stuff like that those really chiming open open notes and things along those lines and it was informed by other things like you know like of course like Hendrick Stone sure how could you not be but is he a virtuoso certainly not you know nobody here is going to be making that argument <laughs> I swear Conan I have Manavishi Orchestra in my notes uh, for one of these songs like, no way. oh my god yeah. it's, it's, it's it's completely not apparent. as a compliment, by the way. Wasn't expecting <laughs> yeah. that comparison, to be honest with you. But you're talking about the idea of drone notes yeah. and Eastern music and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Not virtuosity of John McLaughlin and <laughs> others. Okay. Right. Let's keep it rolling to the next song on our focus list, which is called TVI. So first of all, it's not like some meta commentary on like television dehumanizing people and stuff like that. It's literally about the female gaze. Mm, okay. It's like, oh yeah, if, you know, if girl's checking you out. She's got the TVI, is what it is. Is it me, or does every time this song starts, you think of Ozzy? This is a very Ozzy yell at the beginning. I can see it. I liked this song a lot, actually. This was yeah. this was my favorite song on the album, with the exception of the end. We'll get into that. But one of the things that bumped me a little bit, especially upon first listening, is that it is so obvious that he is holding a mic in his hand for this song particularly. And there is so much sibilance on his – as somebody who struggles with sibilance myself, a lot of hissy S's and stuff like that. <laughs> get some plosive <laughs> sibilance. Yeah, it took me a bit to get over it. And then also there's that point in the song where they literally just have him coughing for like 15 seconds, which is like, why would you include the least pleasant sound in the world? Somebody coughing for 15 <laughs> seconds on your fucking track. I don't get why they didn't cut that. Maybe it bled onto the, the drum mics and like, we have to keep it. This is the take. Sorry, we got to keep that coughing. Let's pull a Led Zeppelin too. Let's turn it up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Lean or, into uh, it. Lean what into is it. the Sabbath song that starts with the coughing? Sweet Leaf. But yeah, that's a commentary on hitting a bong basically yeah. this is, oh is I it iggy, i didn't notice yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think this is iggy trying to go for a high note and being like ah! <laughs> oh, oh. i do like the song i think it's primitive in a good way and i like the drums here this is the one where i realized that iggy's singing style follows the guitar style mm-hmm. 
And there's a specific moment I really caught on to where the guitar starts doing a stabby rhythmic thing, and then Iggy kind of chimes in as a, almost a call and response to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, their styles of, you know, the vocal style and the guitar style are actually quite similar. And I liked, I liked that. that. That happens at about 3.05. Yeah, I think that for me, well, first of all, that came up on tour. Tony was like, we're just talking, you know, we're just sitting around like waiting for, you know, the club to open up or something. And we were talking about like moments that are in recorded history that's like, oh, yeah, surprising that ended up on the record. But yeah, the, the, <laughs> the horrible coughing and then this was not something I even like heard for like years. And then I was like, is that a cough? Like what? Why is that in there? <laughs> but but I also gotta respect. Like, all right, well, it's you know, warts and all, right? Sure, fucking raw. Yeah, it's definitely raw. I mean, it's it's about as, as raw as it gets. I gotta say, the moment where everything like stops and then Ron brings the guitar riff back and then you hear the pop 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 pop. pop, pop. One of my if you know, if I was to make a coolest moments in rock and roll compilation, that would be in there for me because I it's it's like oh, I love it so much. I love it. I hate I hated that. Because there was no bass, the bass never came back in. Yeah, and so it felt like it was the like, beginning of a kick in that never happened. <laughs> it was the beginning, of, like the kick in never actually happened. They yeah. were like, if, yeah. if the bass had come in and given me something driving, yeah. I'd have been like, oh, cool. But it just doesn't happen. And so I was like, oh, what the fuck, guys? Like, it's a little bit of a you know, it's like a tease. Like the song's gonna go all of a sudden, kick back in and rock and call me a rockist or whatever the fuck you want but i love to have the fucking bass providing a nice throbbing melody behind that or a nice throbbing bed behind that and it didn't happen and i was left wanting definitely it, it definitely seemed like dave alexander maybe just wasn't paying attention or something probably very <laughs> drunk this they, they sent him out for cough medicine yeah, exactly. He's robo tripping in the corner. He's like, "Ah, oh, song's over. I'm done now." <laughs> uh, I, I love it. I, I get what you're saying about the bass, especially because I think there's not as much praise given to Dave Alexander. And it's interesting that Mike Watt, who has a very different bass style, <laughs> we'll say, played bass for the Reunited Stooges because uh, Dave Alexander he did not live a long life. No, he, no, he did not. He, he like died like I think five years after this record or something along those lines. He's in the Twenty Seven Club, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, was he really? Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Twenty Seven Club of alcohol. Like uh, he oh, had geez. a pulmonary embolism because Oof. of he was submitted. He was went to the hospital because he had pancreatitis because of alcoholism, and then it led to him basically. Just his body fell apart. But, Conan, I will agree with you. I actually think he's a pretty fucking good bass player. And I thought he did really interesting stuff. It's like, dude, like, you're not, you don't want Getty Lee on here. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) that wouldn't work. But he's, he's driving, though. He really, he really does drive. So authoritative. Like, and I guess when Watt, and I know this uh, because I grilled him on it when he was on Protonic, like, when Watt, like, started playing with him, he kept being like, do less. Mm, Do less. And I and I love that because if you think about like the appeal of this band again, you can you can love the ethos or hate the ethos. Like do less is, yeah, that's that's what this is. And yeah, and there's a certain genius and beauty to it that uh, yeah, even though he doesn't come in in the, in the it, like I almost think of it like uh, you know Problem Child. There's a version of Problem Child by ACDC where they just bring the riff back because you're like, well, fuck it, it's a great riff. 
We're going to bring it back. Why? <laughs> Fuck you. That's why. And like, that's kind of like what, I, what that TBI is for me. Like, hey, remember when we were doing this a minute ago? Yeah, I do. It just stopped. <laughs> ACDC actually isn't a bad touchstone for this band, other than the singing aspect, but the the shoving a riff down your throat until it becomes almost trance-like. Yeah. There's, there's something to that. Yeah. Well, you know, Conan, I, I think back to a, a comment that Phil made on our podcast a while back when you're talking about Iggy Pop saying do less, and Phil had made the comment about playing live. He's like, for a long time, I tried to do so much because I didn't have the confidence that the part that I wrote was cool enough. And no, if you have a cool part, just do the cool part. You don't need to embellish it a whole bunch. Have confidence in the part. And that leads to, like Rob said, this sort of hypnotic, like, no, this is a cool thing, and we're going to do it, and you're going to get settled into it, and then you're going to fall into it, and you're going to be like consumed by it. And when people get really riffy and splashy and like doing licks all over the place, it really kind of can bump you from that. It can it can detract from the beauty and the genius of the actual riff, even you know. Yeah, Cause, totally. Because again, what you think of when you're playing is not necessarily what the listener is going to be hearing, and that's a yeah. hard hurdle to get over as well. Yeah, patience, right? <laughs> right, right, and and it's sort of like trust the people you're playing with too, and it goes back to what you're talking about earlier about like you know, oh yeah, like. You're in the studio and you're like, oh, this part actually isn't good at all. Like, I thought this was great. And it's like, I'm hearing it. And, like, that's like not at all what I thought it was. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but then by the same token, there could be something where something that on its own, isolated, you're like, that's idiotic. And then in the song, you're like, oh, that's perfect. Yeah. And this, yeah. this is a great example of that. And, and Dave Alexander is, is a really underrated part of this band. And I, I think Mike Watt gives gets so much heat for being an over player but he did such an amazing job in the reform stooges and again playing bass for one of the people that like made him want to play bass too which is kind of wild right peace and love very different styles but he did an amazing job fair enough shall we move on to the next track it's called dirt So you all heard the song that this is, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Born Under a Band Sign. And this is just the <laughs> shitty version of it. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Shots fired. What was the deal with that? What was, what's the deal with that? It's just Born Under a Bad Sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely did think this wasn't amazing. I liked it okay for some of its ins and outs, but it's definitely just blues. Pretty pretty basic blues. But But here's what I think they're able to accomplish. With all this music, I could kind of say this about all any of it, and we alluded to it with maybe with Lust for Life, but specifically the Stooges to me are a soundtrack band. Everything about them is very cinematic, mm. and every time I'm listening to this material, I can picture I'm getting a very evocative set of images in my head, and I do think the one that comes to mind is I believe I want to be your dog is used in lock stock and two smoking barrels. Yes, it is. That might've been the first time I ever heard that song back in the, what the late nineties, maybe that movie came out. But so to me, they're able to create the soundscape 
that is appropriate, even though the material itself, there's not much there. This is the song that I was like, oh, I have figured out what my recommended dosage of Iggy Pop is, and it's about four and a half minutes. <laughs> and this seven-minute song, I was like, yep, that Make was sure to take you had about two and a half more minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to say also it hurt my, my own throat to just listen to him croak it out. It was probably take 37. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I think in, in the hands of another lyricist, and I use the term loosely, uh, and vocalist, it would just be I've been hurt at the beginning instead of that being like when the second verse, right? I think because I think I've been dirt is like, oh, that's cool. I haven't heard that, but I've been hurt. And well, I've got like, what is that? Like 75% of blues songs start off with that line, yeah, you know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Uh, to be clear, to me, the song is a success. I, I actually think this one sort of justifies its length. Like, is it a rehash of blues music? Yes, it is. But I think they put their stamp on it. And I think Iggy is pretty compelling throughout it, even though there's a lot of croaks. The thing that cracked me up is that even Spotify's lyric match gave up about two-thirds of the way through the song and just stopped <laughs> presenting new lyrics. AI just choked itself as well. I, I feel like Iggy Pop has written a lot of terrible lyrics. This is not one of them, though. There is like sort of like, you know, do you feel it when you touch me? And then like the second one is cut me. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Was that, was that Fred Schneider doing Iggy Pop right there? Is that what your impression was? Do you feel it when you touch me? Do you feel it when you cut me? Yeah, I think there's a wisdom in knowing that you're not a great lyricist right. and then keeping it to very few lyrics per song. Because just for a few minutes today, I was walking around my neighborhood and I threw on Iggy's 2023 offering. And I immediately noticed that there are so many words coming at you that I just couldn't help but go, this is terrible. I can't listen to this. No, I, I would love to be an editor for Iggy Pop's lyrics where I'm like, no, don't don't say that. <laughs> don't say, say less. Say, say, say less, less, bro. Do you think that we could legitimately blame Iggy Pop for Anthony Kiedis? Do you think that... <laughs> Both shirtless, and, and, both long hair, <laughs> long hair, bad, bad dye Big jobs. Stooges yeah, fans yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Big Stooges fans. Oh, I, I think they've even yeah, covered yeah, Search sure. and Destroy, and it was horrible, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I mean, it was like exactly what you think it's going to be. It's like that. That doesn't sound good, but and it wasn't. Bass player needs to do less. <laughs> <laughs> but but I feel like in a way that and and yeah, Anthony Kiedis definitely is, is a singer that should do a lot less, but. What I like about, and I think where Dirt is a good example, is Iggy has a good way of laying into each phrase and imbuing a different meaning with it, with the intensity. And I think that that's something that we come to associate with certain styles of music and we kind of take for granted. But think about the 1970, right? When you think of their influence, think of someone like Kurt Cobain, right? And like how he could like a sing like the same lyric but it means something totally different the next time because of how it's sung it's again not what he's certainly not what he's saying because he ain't saying that much but it's how it's being said it's there's volumes and uh and, and an ocean beneath the waves yeah that was one of the things that i noticed from this band especially with the context of 1970 is the musical lineage was deep I'm like oh i can see where so many people got their cues from this. This is a groove, man. This this is this is a groove song. Like this is uh and you get little cool like it could have been hackneyed. It could have been like some boring blues thing. And like I think it's 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 more than that. And also where it sits in the record, I think it's the right song to be where it's at in the record too. It is like twenty percent of the record though. 
Well, to be clear, the record goes, in my opinion, quite downhill from here. This is the last track on side one. And side one is the only one that has songs on it, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Dang. So now, let's direct our attention to the title track, which is on side two, called Fun House. First of all, I don't even know what Steve, the sax player, was doing through the rest of these sessions because he's, is he sitting in the control room all day, every day for seven days straight? Is he just off getting drunk on his own? He's hunting down Indiana Jones, right? That's what he's doing. Exactly. (laughs) Apparently, Iggy's direction to him was to play like Maceo Parker on acid, except he only plays one riff for seven minutes. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, that was his interpretation of it. (laughs) I mean, have you ever heard Sex Bomb by Flipper? No, <laughs> it's it's if, if you it's it's like it's like a more antediluvian version of this, I, and I say that as a compliment because Flipper took an entirely different. Uh, which, by the way, Tony filled in on bass. Tony who plays in my band, just as an aside, filled in on bass for Flipper recently, which rock and roll kind of cool to like. Oh yeah, you know that band that like influenced like Nirvana and like all these other bands. Like yeah, you got to fill in on bass from you. Like you, he has a stronger claim than Moby. <laughs> who has an entire chapter of his book about when he played with Flipper. I was like, you have a way stronger claim than, than he did. <laughs> uh, but I digress. Side 2 is all about tall feel. I, I think that 1970, is, which we're not talking about, is a great kickoff to the Side 2. Title track, it's long. It's long and it's a, and it's a vibe. And it's sort of where like the talk of them being like jazzy or whatever is sort of like comes in, but in a way that no band, no rock band was doing at the time. None. 0.0% of the rock bands were, (laughs) again, malignant chaos or absolute genius, whatever you want to call it. Nobody was doing it. I I think a week into these recording sessions, because again, we know these were recorded chronologically, or maybe this is now 10 days in to the recording sessions. They were just losing steam. They had fewer ideas and they were trying to stretch them out. This is just way too long. In the way that these first i get that their ethos is take a single riff that kind of works for two minutes and then create chaos for another three to five minutes that's the template for seems like a lot of their songs anyway but this one to me is egregious because i think it wastes a cool new tone a new tone in the saxophone that they could have used in a cooler way he sounds like he's a good saxophone player but we don't really get much soloing or riffing or Really, even if it was chaos, it doesn't really descend to chaos. So it does not justify its length. They go up, then they go down, then they go up, then they go back down again. Like this is not shout by the Isley Brothers. (laughs) This is inappropriate. This was the this was the song that made me reference Mahavishnu Orchestra, and it was it was in essence that this is like a Mahavishnu Orchestra song, 
but without the virtuosity <laughs> that maybe can justify everybody playing all the notes all the fucking time. And I, I, yeah, not my style. I got to say, this is the one that it, it didn't break me, but every time this song came up on the album, I was like, ah, okay, I guess we're going to listen to this one again. Let's go. I don't know what you guys are talking about. At the 550 mark, when he strangles that Muppet, I think it's the greatest. <laughs> it's the greatest moment ever put on tape. I mean, that that is the most... I laughed out loud, like bent over guffawing, because there are other moments on this album where it's like, holy crap, he's shredding his vocals. But this just sounds like he's like, back up, back up. Like, it's... it's <laughs> we'll drop it here, but it is so good. It's so good. Well, and he also gives uh, this is in a rare echelon of uh, of songs where the singer gives an instruction to play to one of the uh, one of the other band members. In this case, it's yeah, yeah, <laughs> hard to believe. Where it's and it's a uh, blow, Steve, and then like he's like, oh, really? Oh, okay. Like it's, oh, he almost sounds surprised. Like with with the, with the, the uh, like, oh, okay. All right, I thought that's what I was doing, Shit. but sure, okay. We're doing this. <laughs> take take it to the bridge, Gary, or whatever. <laughs> like whatever yeah. people. No people guitar. Do. Yeah. But, yeah. Ding, 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 but then I'm expecting a solo. Or something exciting. What? But then he doesn't solo. He just kind of like does some more honking. You know, it's like more. He more. does. He, that, yeah. that, he that he does. That he does. This is like as a wayward goose that's loose in the studio. Yeah. Okay. You know what? I'm going to add that to my mix, Conan, of times when when someone calls something out in a song and it does not pay off. Just like, right up right. there with the Hall and Oates tune. Listen to yes. this, yeah. and then nothing happens. <laughs> sounds just like the rest of it, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They actually <laughs> took stuff out of the mix right. after that one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, there's something to be said for that, but uh, yeah, uh, th- this one is very long. Could they get get across the point in half the time? Certainly, they chose not to. You know, well, look, here's my take on the album. You know, sort of holistically, is I actually I liked the first half a lot more than I was expecting to. It grew on me. It had vibe. Like I said, it was cinematic. It was putting pictures into my head, which I think is a goal of music. But the back half just felt unfocused. Maybe this stuff works live. I get it. You're watching Iggy Pop writhe around up there. But on a record, to me, it it fell quite flat. So I'm curious if you or anyone can comment on how this fits. You're saying it's revolutionary, perhaps, above and beyond just their sound? Or, you know, this just feels like experimental kind of garbage that I could find almost anywhere in the canon. What's this? Tropic Thunder? What's the saying? You never go full retard? <laughs> that's, that's the one, yes. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe if nothing else, it's a cautionary tale. Don't go too deep. <laughs> well, it's no butt town, obviously. Yeah, it's no, yeah. It's no butt town. <laughs> it's really. no butt town. Uh, yeah. Okay, so how can I call it one of the greatest rock and roll records of all time when you have, like, again, just like a loose goose, like hanging out the back half of the song? I don't know. No, I kind of just mean the back of the record. I'm not, I'm, we'll talk about our summarized opinions. I think 1970s are unfuckwithable, personally. But I get it. The titular song, Funhouse, does overstay its welcome a little bit. I don't know. LA, LA Blues is I've good. I've achieved my goal, Conan. You can stop talking. Okay. I got you to complain about the Stooges. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> we'll just loop that for an hour. 
hour and ten minutes. <laughs> Blow, Steve. Yeah, okay. Right. A goose per- right. wandered in. He was just asking for cocaine. That's what he was he actually wanted, doing. Yeah, exactly. He's like, "Can you hand that over to me? I'm running out of steam here. We're eight minutes into the song." Yeah, yeah, exactly. We had ideas. We've, we've, we we got to get meet the runtime so it's not classified as an EP. We'll get less money. Yeah. I think we've gabbed quite enough about Funhouse. Now it's that fun time where we get to vote. Is this a must-listen, a must-hear, before you die? Is Funhouse a must-listen before you die? What say you, Tom? You know, surprisingly, I'm going to come in with a yes. I was coming into this week like, oh, God damn it. This is just going to be more kind of garbage. And I was very pleasantly surprised from the first time I put it on. Some of these songs had to grow on me, but from the very beginning, I did not get this sense of staleness or a sense of also ran type of shit i was like this they're doing something it it did not always make me happy but it never made me bored and so i will absolutely give a yes listen to this album funhouse by the stooges that's one yes adam what do you think buddy all right so kind of start things off here on the record i want to go in and say that i regret my vote on system of a down (laughs) Okay, so I'm just I'm going to plant that seed first, okay? But I say that in order to say that even though I struggled with this album, I did find it boring. I see so many things downstream that in that this was influenced by. So it was a rough listen, but I'm also going to have to say, yeah, give it a listen. It's a challenge, but again, a lot of the a lot of the stuff I like downstream, you could see a direct line to this. I, I'm just checking the scrolls here, Adam. You voted no on System of a Down, and that's what you're saying you re- you regret? I regret that because I'm voting this on. So I feel like I, I'm not like... Gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. I'm not being consistent, right? I wasn't sure from context. So I had to, you know, bust out the, the text. Other than those are both S bands, they would be in the same like leader card in the record <laughs> store. I don't really see that much correlation, right. but I appreciate the flex on the <laughs> Well, I feel like Serge Tanky and the singer one time woke up and like listened to this album and was like, oh, I need to scream for a living. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's where, where yeah, yeah. that's where it happened. Yes, that's sure. my. To be tie-in. frank, I also wouldn't want either Iggy Pop or Surge pissed at me and coming <laughs> after me. I feel like they both would fuck me up yeah, in a different way. <laughs> maybe, maybe more emotionally on Iggy's bet. part. I mean, certainly yeah. if you ask in the right. late seventies, <laughs> he'd just get me depressed and strung out on hard drugs, yeah. and I'd be like, "God damn it, you ruined my life." Make you listen to nightclub in again as you actually try to score smack. Yeah. Okay. That is two yes votes. Conan, <laughs> what say you? Unimpeachably, absolutely, yes. Uh, this is, in my opinion, one of one of the best rock and roll records uh, ever. And it's certainly in my top 20, if not my top 10, just based on, as mentioned, what it influenced alone. It's worthy of inclusion. But I think there's something that a lot of bands try to do by emulating Stooges and especially Funhouse and rarely pull off. And there's a madcap, uh, low-grade menace and groove to this that I think people don't give credit for as music, uh, but sometimes give credit to as an influence. And, And I absolutely adore it. So, yes. Excellent. Well, this is Rob here, and I'm gonna make it unanimous, I have to say. I think this is absolutely a must hear before you die. I would echo a lot of the sentiments that were already mentioned. I was not super looking forward to listening to it. I was. I know that Iggy Pop is one of the all-time iconic frontmen, one of a handful of true icons in this rock and roll world, but I was afraid that that wouldn't really translate to anything particularly special or exciting 
on the recording, but I was pleasantly surprised, really from note one. I It kind of hooked me in right away, and yes, there are excesses that we've discussed, but all in all, it has a distinct style. All the words we mentioned, raw, primal, primitive, menacing, dangerous, it made me think all those things again and again. It was very evocative. So absolutely go listen to Funhouse by The Stooges. Conan, we should probably go ahead and thank you for being a good yeah, sport man. coming on. Yeah, Talking man. about thank The you. Stooges. We really appreciate you bringing your, what would you call yourself, a punkist? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. See, it's funny because I when I called you guys raucous, like, I feel like I'm the raucous amongst the more like noise rock punk rock people mm. I, and like i don't know this, if that makes me like a like a musical contrarian or what but i'm like oh well you know actually you know thin lizzy's pretty great and there's a lot of you know stuff you can really appreciate if you're really in a black flag you know like i'll have those conversations because for me it's all like one big thing but then sometimes but then i listen to you guys talk about like gang of four or something and then like i'm like oh get these guys but, <laughs> no, but yeah, listen, I think sometimes you get a we bad We said yes on Gang of Four. You, but you did. <laughs> yes. But what I like about it, and specifically I mentioned Gang of Four, is but then it's interesting because I feel like I don't hear those kinds of opinions about those kinds of bands and records from people that are coming at it from that perspective. And I find that interesting and unique. Because, again, I can listen to something and be like, oh, these guys are full of it on this one. But, and like, it doesn't make me, like, mad, usually. It just was like, usually. Uh, it's just like, oh, I never would have thought about, like, oh, there's they're annoyed that there's no middle eight there. What? Why would you care about that? You know, like, but, but I enjoy it because, again, I come from that perspective of, uh, you know, working at a record store that like opened up my whole world to things like Stooges where, and then I go like, Oh yeah, there's actually like a lot of jazz I like. And like, Oh, you know what? Like this like first wave country stuff is actually, you know, pretty good. I just hate this young country BS stuff like that. That like, so you're, you're like a big Steely Dan fan now. (laughs) I am Steely Dan agnostic. I refuse to be radicalized by Steely Dan. Okay. I do not have strong feelings about Steely Dan Good answer. But look, I think we're all on the same page here. We're trying. Yes, we have, our biases and the things we grew up on and our home bases, if you will, musically. And and yet, we're trying to discover, we're trying to see things and learning about the context of a record oftentimes puts you in a much more sympathetic mindset, puts you in a mm-hmm. much better place to understand what the music was was attempting to accomplish and whether or not it accomplished what it was attempting. Conan, I have re-listened to that Gang of Four album a couple of times since the podcast, and I actually do fucking dig it. it it's pretty good. It's also... On, and I said this when I had Hugo from Gang of Four on Protonic. It's an objectively weird sounding record. Like, it's just a weird yeah, yeah, sounding yeah. record. And like, it's like jangly and yeah, and it's so yeah. like austere, but kind of like claustrophobic. Uh, like, it, it's just a weird sound. And but I say that, and you know, Andy Gill again, who got savage on that episode, another one of my favorite guitar players. But I like him <laughs> for a lot of the reasons that. I mean, Victor and Associates used to, like, we never recorded it, but we used to cover a Gang of Four song. Like, that's a, you know, but there was also, like, I was like, yeah, we're never going to record that. Why bother? Tom and I played with Victor and Associates, I believe. We gigged together at least once, right? Yep, yep. And uh, and repeat after me. Yeah. Uh, Yep, yep, yep. The, but the thing with that, but again, I like those kinds of conversations because for me, it reminds me of, like, just like this show reminds me of being at the record store. And I guess the classic example is High Fidelity, right? Everyone knows High Fidelity and like, okay, Sure. sure, whatever. But... I I think it's cool because that keeps me interested, especially when it's something where it's like, what? And I actually put chose Funhouse because I thought there were other records. I'm like, oh, we should do that one. But like, we're going to stand around and be like, yes, yeah, it sure is great how great this record is. 
Yeah, everybody agrees with that. But from my perspective, I grew up with like rock and roll parents, like with hippie parents. So I had like, you know, ACDC and like Neil Young and Black Sabbath and Zeppelin played for me like from the cradle. But it wasn't until I found bands like Nirvana and like what everything that begat Nirvana that led me to be like, oh, there's this whole other world of music that's like more like different. It's different. It's different. It hits me differently. And that not only made me want to play music, it led me to search all these out, which basically kicked into overdrive once I worked at a record store. And that led to the ruination of my entire adulthood, basically. (laughs) Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point. Maybe it's the problem of the fact that my parents listen to absolute shit music. (laughs) Like (laughs) Irish traditionals (laughs) and like... Hold on. Are we talking shit on the Clancy Brothers right now? How dare you? (laughs) Oh, like you wish it was as good as the Clancy Brothers, all right? And then my branching out was 70s rock. Sure. I heard 70s rock for the first time. I was like, oh, shit. But if you grew up on 70s rock, you're like, yeah, what the fuck ever. Yeah, and Tom's then you hear like, something slow that's ride. Like, yeah, let's take it easy, totally. baby. Yeah, fuck it, dude. I am not above some fuck Fuckhead's right? good. I like fuckhead. <laughs> well, again, Conan, thank you so much for coming on. That's a pleasure. You've been a game and, and fun contributor. We'd love to have you back anytime. Where can people, as you can hear audience conan's a very knowledgeable musician he makes records he puts on festivals he has a podcast he's super entertaining where should people go to find you conan if you listen to this show and you like hearing one-on-one discussion about music with musicians uh, you should listen to protonic reversal which is a very long-running podcast they do nine and a half years now 300 plus yeah, episodes or yeah, something? 336 yeah. i think i listened to the one with mike oh, Watt nice, today. Awesome. it was great well done. Yeah, in prep for the Stooges episode, right? So nice I listened work. to the James Williamson episode, also played with the Stooges, that we, not on Funhouse, but we alluded to it. James Williamson has like one of the craziest arcs, too, in the fact that he was like done playing music. Like He was like retired from it and worked at like Sony or something as like an executive. And then he basically retired and then like started playing with the Stooges again. And like there's this whole like new generation of people that were like all about the music. I was like, all right, well, cool. I still know how to play guitar, so that's cool. Uh, but yeah, Protonic Reversal, like there's I'm not gonna say there's something for everyone because there's not. But if you want <laughs> if you want to hear things like I have Tony Visconti on, right? Who recorded all those Bowie records. Hell and recorded, yeah. Oh, sweet. Uh, we just talked about him. He was involved with uh, T Rex. T Rex. Yeah. Yeah, 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 we just recorded that one. Yeah. So, uh, and so many other great things. I've had, So it's not just like from the world of like noise rock and punk rock or whatever. Like, it, But it's, it's all. It makes sense to me. Uh, and I've had a lot of folks on. It's it, the audience for it grew a lot during the COVID. Uh, mostly people that would always, I don't have time to listen to podcasts. I got time now, don't you? Yeah. And, and I don't take that lightly because I've basically been doing this, the more or less the same thing for forever, but I'm just doing the thing that a lot of people should do, and which is just making the show I want to hear. And other people seem to like listening to it, and that's really cool. That's how you've always struck me, Conan. We've known each other now quite many years, wow, yeah. uh, uh, quite a while, and you're just you're a fan of of music and you're a promoter of other people's music and you like to get excited you're an enthusiast in the best way possible it's, so. it still thrills me and like when i make music with Conan neutron the secret friends i'm making the kind of records that i want to hear and i'm putting on the kind of show that i want to see I, and it's not lost on me that, you know i play with you know dale crover of melvin's on the records who like also was briefly in nirvana as well like and it's like, honestly i feel like one of rock and roll's great living drummers and that's not lost on me and don't get me wrong every time i hear you guys like bag on someone for singing poorly i'm like oh god i'm not that great of a singer fuck <laughs> like almost every time 
<laughs> to be clear, neither are we, though. It's yeah, just yeah, we're definitely not either. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just good fun. Okay, we're gonna link all Conan stuff in the show notes. And uh, yeah, Caterwall Yearly Music Festival. Again, we can we can do this for forever. But like, uh, yeah, I I do a lot. I, for me, it's just water, right? But uh, I enjoy other people to get enthusiastic about music. So what I like best about your show is that even when I vehemently disagree, you guys get very excited about music, and I think it's a fun discussion and uh, that makes it a good show awesome thanks man well we always say if you're shouting at your speakers we've we've achieved, <laughs> we've achieved our goal. goal check yeah. <laughs> the only thing remaining i believe is to get our homework for next week tom all righty i have the albinator it has been smeared in peanut butter and it has uh, <laughs> clearly nice, doesn't have a shirt nice on. It's nice and sweaty. So let's see if those gears are lubricated we're going to spin that wheel and see what we'll be listening to next Drum roll, please. Next week, we will be listening to... The album is 77 by Talking Heads. Oh, right. Talking Heads get yeah. a lot of talk on your show, ironically. Yeah. So... Yeah, we love them. That's that's, that's, a, that's a great yeah. one to discuss. <laughs> kind oh, of yeah. a big fan, but we haven't covered him yet, so... Yeah. Exciting. Pressure's on. Oh, yeah. That's a good he one. He's a beast on this album. They got that I, obscure yeah. song Psycho Killer on there on that one, right? If I remember yeah, right. the one that nobody's heard <laughs> of yeah, before. It's a real deep cut. Okay. Well, it's been an excellent episode. We hope you listen along with us to Talking Heads. And if we missed anything about the Stooges, if you agree with us, if you disagree with us, if you want to add any additional knowledge to our knowledge banks, please write us an email. We love to read your emails hit us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. We absolutely love to learn and hear where you disagree or agree with us. Give it on over. We're going to close out the show now for 1001album complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I'm Adam. And I've been Kona Neutron. The Kona Neutron. Boosh.